Hello, I'm Terence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'll be speaking today with Andrew Basevich about Ukraine, defense spending, and the ideas in his newest book on shedding an obsolete past, bidding farewell to the American century. And you can learn more about Andrew Basevich's work at responsiblestatecraft.org. That's one word, responsiblestatecraft.org. And you can find a lot of his latest articles at Tom Dispatch, one word, Tom, T-O-M, Dispatch, D-I-S-P-A-T-C-H, TomDispatch.com or TheNation.com. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com. Podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E, M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, Terrence McNally, all one word, dot net. We're going to talk today about foreign policy and the military. The countries, the conflicts, the causes, the faces change. But is military action and defense spending the one huge thing that serves both political tribes, both political parties, so that when one challenges leaders and policymakers to at least be more honest with ourselves, more respectful of other ways of dealing with conflict, more realistic about our goals and how to achieve them, the tendency of decision makers and the media is to assign such common sense thinking, is to assign such common sense thinking to the fringe of either party. I mentioned this perspective, this question about the overwhelming kind of acceptance of military is the end-all and be-all of foreign policy to a pretty wise and progressive friend. And she responded that she didn't feel that problem. The one I was concerned with was a top priority. She was much more concerned, this was a couple of days ago, about getting assault rifles off the street, reining in domestic homicide and suffering. And I was taken aback, though, on reflection, not surprised. Her response, and that of millions like her, is actually what provides the context in which military spending, military solutions continue to dominate our response to the world without much question or much discussion or reflection. I responded to her pointing out, I responded to her pointing out the opportunity costs of the money spent on defense, as well as suggesting that the influence of a military perspective, a, a view of others as enemies, and might as the source of unquestioned power actually produce some of the conditions and personalities that fuel the domestic killing that was her priority. I turn to today's guest as someone whose experience and whose thinking has prepared them to approach this question and its consequences much more deeply and authoritatively than I. I first interviewed Andrew Basevich in 2008. His book, The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism, pull things together in ways that I hadn't seen before. Things like our politics of personality, the rise of the imperial presidency, our national culture of consumption, as well as how all of those link to our military adventures. And he's been a guest on the show several times and I've paid close attention to his insights ever since. His latest book on shedding an obsolete past, bidding farewell to the American century, is a collection of essays written for tomdispatch.com during the interval between the presidential election campaign of 2016 and the first year of the Biden administration in 2021. In the introduction, and I'm gonna grab a few quotes from his introduction to sort of set this up. He writes of the post-Cold War period, beginning on a note of exalted expectations and culminating with the nation disintegrating into warring factions, a reality vividly displayed in the assault on the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. He quotes George Packer, who on election night 2024 wrote, we are two countries. As Basevich sees it, years of relentless obsessing about Donald Trump culminate in this sort of judgment, which is too convenient by half. 
We are not two countries, Basevich says. We are several, perhaps many, and we don't get along. And there will be no restoration of unity until Americans first negotiate a ceasefire among themselves. And then he sets out the purpose of his new book of essays by inviting readers to frame the recent past as something other than the age of Trump. This book represents a tentative preliminary effort at addressing that requirement, that that negotiation of a ceasefire. The essays in this collection pay particular attention, he points out, to the consequences stemming from the militarization of U.S. policy dating from the end of the Cold War and reaching its zenith zenith in the years following 9-11. The militarization of basic U.S. policy, Basevich contends, played a key role in facilitating Donald Trump's rise to national political prominence and exacerbating the divisions that afflict us. Andrew Basevich co-founded the Quincy Institute in 2019 and is the chairman of the institution's board of directors. He's professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University, a graduate of West Point and Princeton. He served in the U.S. Army for 23 years, retiring with the rank of colonel. He's the author, co-author, editor of more than a dozen books, including The Limits of Power, The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory, After the Apocalypse, How America's America's role in a world transformed and his latest, the one that has just come out recently on shedding an obsolete past, bidding farewell to the American century. Welcome again, Andrew Basevich, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Oh, thanks for having me. And let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation Monday, January 30th. So first of all, how are you? We last spoke in uh, June 2021, just kind of you know, how, how life transpires for Andrew Basevich. Well, I'm dealing with some uh, health challenges, to tell you the truth. I won't, uh, I won't describe them in detail, but it's uh, added complications to uh, my life and to, uh, I'll say, our life, meaning my wife. Uh, but we're dealing with it. You know, I'm 75. What do you expect, right? Andrew, I'm 75 come May. Mm-hmm. And, and my wife and I have been dealing with exactly the same. Mm-hmm. COVID was the national thing. We, we, we haven't had trouble with that one, but we've both been beset by things since then. So. Same, exactly the same with us. Uh, well, COVID has been a, a minor blip in our lives, uh, but there have been other things that have been uh, something more than blips. Right. Catching up with us is sort of how I feel about it. Well, my best to you and your wife and Thank good you. luck with all of that. Right. Um, for those who are new to you and your work, what is the Quincy Institute? What What is its origin story? And how do you assess its young life so far? I, I forget exactly when it opened its doors, but tell us. Uh, basically 2019. So the, the full the full name is Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. It's a it's a think tank. How many think tanks are in Washington? <laughs> how many how many leaves are on the cherry trees? Yeah. Uh, Let, along few, the basin? Few, Fewer than lobbyists, but still a lot. (laughs) So we believe that we, I know that we have carved out for ourselves a distinctive niche. Our focus is foreign policy, or perhaps more accurately, our focus is America's role in the world. And we believe that U.S. policy has become excessively militarized and to not simply to the disadvantage of others that we interact with, but more, more significantly to our own disadvantage. You mentioned in the, in the introduction that uh, I believe, the Quincy Institute believes, that if you want to know where this phenomenon called Trumpism came from, uh, the answer has to go far beyond Donald Trump himself, now however objectionable he may be, is, uh, to understand the climate, the circumstances, that gave rise to Trump's rise in his presidency. I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, There's no one single explanation, Uh, but but I believe and we believe at Quincy that one important explanation relates to the misuse of American military power, uh, which has (laughs) caused havoc in most of the places where we have uh, gone to war, has cost our country dearly, whether we're talking uh, blood or treasure, and quite frankly, has has cost others. You know, we as Americans, we lament, quite rightly lament, 
the number of American soldiers killed in Iraq and in uh, Afghanistan and other places, but primarily Iraq and Afghanistan. We lament uh, the number of American lives that have been uh, terribly damaged, irreparably damaged. We tend not to pay particular attention to all the non-Americans uh, whose lives we have destroyed uh, and disrupted. And those numbers, sadly, uh, are much, much larger. So, so you could say our stance is uh, anti-military, uh, but I would say that our stance, we're not pacifists. Uh, we, we recognize that the world is a complicated place. We acknowledge that uh, we need to have effective defenses. Uh, we acknowledge that there may be circumstances when it is necessary to use force, but we would argue strenuously that those circumstances tend to be uh, fairly rare. <laughs> and, and, and the fact that the country seems to be almost constantly at war, either directly or indirectly, right now it's the proxy war in Ukraine that, that captures our attention, says that there's something fundamentally wrong in our approach to the world. Okay. I was going to sort of say any re reactions to my introduction, specifically that interaction I had with the friend where, you know, I sort of said, this is, I'm going to be interviewing Andrew Bacevich. This is my big question. Yeah. And she goes, that's not that, you know, not top priority for me. As the, as, as I said, sort of the context or the foundation on where this, this, uh, this prevalence of, of, of the military approach goes yeah. unquestioned. Well, what I'm about to say is not intended to be critical of your friend, uh, but, but more of a general comment. I think many of us have a pretty darn short attention span. Uh, I mean, you said that we are meeting, what is today, January 3rd? 30th, uh, 30th, 30th. Excuse me, January 30th. <laughs> uh, and many of us are preoccupied uh, with the, the murder that occurred in Memphis perpetrated by five cops and intriguingly by five black cops killing a black young man. And you, you, you have, it brings you up short, makes you say, what's going on here? Uh, it, would, it would appear that the problem, you know, there, there, there is an argument about the, the prevalence of police brutality in our country which is to say it's a scandal comes nowhere clear to accurately describing it. But I think it's fair to say there has been a perception that the root of this uh, violence perpetrated by police is racism. Uh, and now it's, it looks that that answer doesn't suffice. It certainly does not follow that there is no racism or that racism right, right. is not a factor. Even when it's black on black, that racism doesn't somehow have but, a play. But there, there is something, one, one would also note, for example, we had these two absolutely horrid massacres in your state uh, immediately prior to the Memphis incident. Uh, and as I'm not an expert in, in, in gun controls, but any number of press commentaries have been pointing out that uh, California has the most uh, comprehensive uh, gun control uh, legislation on the books. I don't know for a fact that that's true. I'm accepting that it's true, or at least close to true. Right. And yet, we still have these unbelievable crimes. And it causes you to say, what the heck's going on here? And I think causes many of us to say that, that our answer, the answers that we have been comfortable with, on these matters may not be adequate. Circle back to where your friend is. I suspect that she is preoccupied with these latest headline items. And it's understandable that she should be because they are horrific. On the other hand, it could be therefore that she becomes less interested in the the question that you posed to her, well, where 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 does where does war fit in all this? What what do you, what do you think about our propensity as a nation uh, to to use force? What do you think about uh, the the size, the scope of American military spending and posture relative to other countries in the rest of the world? I think that many of our fellow citizens 
even if generally aware of of the facts of our military posture and policy, find themselves distracted by other more proximate concerns. And therefore, and I'll finish here, I mean, therefore, a sustained, systematic, critical examination of US military policies basically doesn't happen. I didn't know how that last sentence was going to end. I thought you were going to say a critical uh, is 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 a worthy task for the Quincy Institute, but it's even well, worse. Well, no, well, we are we're trying. That's right, <laughs> but it's that, an uphill battle. <laughs> that is true. But what you were saying was a bigger thing: is that <laughs> it, we're speaking into this vacuum. Um, let me talk just a bit about you. I've heard you say this is a bit about you. I I, I like to say that on. In these conversations, we don't just deal with people's work and ideas, but with them as human beings. Um, And I've heard you say that you were a cold warrior and that you and I, or you and, you know, a a hardcore progressive or something, might have been on opposite sides of the barricades. As we said at the top of the show, we're almost exactly the same age. Um, And yet you are now, you know, your books, your work, the Quincy Institute and so on are critical in questioning of the military establishment and the accepted role. What changed more, you or the defense and military establishment? And why do you think the change that happened to, and this is what you must have asked yourself, if nothing else, when you were falling asleep at night, why your perspective changed and so few of your peers did? What what changed is, in a sense, what didn't change. Let me explain. Yeah, I was a cold warrior. I mean, by upbringing, my my you know my folks my folks were both World War II veterans. I grew up in a deeply patriotic uh, household, uh, and my parents both were uh, not simply good citizens, but they were good people. But the environment in which I grew up was not particularly conducive conducive to critical thinking. Where'd you go to school in the sixties? High school or college? College. Okay, college was Harvard, 65 okay, so to 69. You, okay, so there, there you are at Harvard, 65 to 69. I, I dare say it was in a, an exciting place and an, and an exciting moment. I dare say you were probably engaged in some kind of political activity. <laughs> dare uh, say. Maybe, you're, maybe, maybe one of the highlights of your life. I don't know. So from 1965 to 1969, when you're in, at Harvard, I'm at West Point. Uh, a, to put it mildly, a different environment. One that not entirely, but to a considerable extent, isolated me from the turbulence, the currents that were sweeping the country at that particular moment. And I might have said, well, I need, I need, I need all, all this protest, all this under, I need this, I need to become part of this. But I was a cadet at West Point, en route to getting a commission in the United States Army, by extension, en route to going to Vietnam. And although perhaps, perhaps I ought to have been more critical in questioning. The fact of the matter is, at age 19, 20, 21, I was not. And so I accepted what Mr. McNamara or LBJ uh, said about the rationale for our participation in the Vietnam War. I can't say I was entirely persuaded by the optimistic projections Mm -hmm. of how things were gonna turn out, but I certainly did not have the critical capacity to say, well, that's a lot of bullshit. Yeah. So, so that's who I was as a young person. Uh, I served in Vietnam. I stayed in the army. Uh, I was a cold warrior in the sense that I, I basically accepted the premise that uh, it was important for U.S. national security uh, to to resist the Soviet Union, to resist Soviet aggressive behavior uh, in ways that I now regret. I think I accepted the uh, the notion of monolithic communism even after. It was obviously disproven when Nixon went to China. Nonetheless, uh, I accepted the framework of U.S. policy. And therefore, when the Cold War ended, 
I thought to myself, well, now things are going to change. Because all this stuff that we've been doing, you know, large quantities of troops stationed in Western Europe, where I served uh, for several years, bases around the world, a, a CIA that embarks upon covert operations to overthrow governments, etc. I was not able to justify all of that individually, but in terms of the framework of national security policy made sense and even appeared necessary Mm. because the Cold War demanded that we do certain things. So when the Cold War ended, I thought, well, now we can go back to being a normal country. Now we don't have to have this globally deployed military. Now we can pay more attention to our domestic requirements. Now we can let the Europeans or the Asians or whoever manage their own affairs and we can manage our affairs. And guess what? It didn't happen. Right. That was the moment of awakening for me. Wow. That when the Cold War ended, we didn't change. On the contrary, when the Cold War ended, in many respects, we became more of what we had been during the Cold War. Now, the arguments about the imperative imperative of American global leadership, arguments about the absolute necessity of global U.S. military superiority became all the stronger. And very quickly, the appetite for armed interventionism grew. Now, promoted by people like Saddam Hussein, certainly promoted by the events of 9-11, but really it was after the Cold War that we became more or less a nation permanently at war. And I found that not persuasive. Uh, And that's when I think my basic frame of reference, my basic perspective changed, and I think it's fair to say, changed pretty radically. Yeah, one thing that's interesting, two observations right away. One is that when you talk about the very long war, you date it to... Uh, either the beginning, uh, our entry into World War II, or the end of World War II and the Cold War. What you say when you say that is that prior to that, this this framework of the U.S. as the dominant power, U.S. power as being what keeps the the world uh, in balance or whatever, w- was not the American perspective prior to World War II. And what's, you know, we, we're both sort of talking here about what we knew, what we saw, what we, for me, that's been kind of a given for as long as, you know, for as long as I can remember. And the thought that there was a time when we didn't think of ourselves that way was actually surprising to me. Right. You know, one of the things that has changed, I think, in my perspective is really the, the, my view of the of the overall arc of U.S. policy, going back to the founding of the Anglo-American colonies. And I think my view probably is one shared by many on the left, and that is that from the outset, we have been engaged in what is, in essence, an imperial project uh, that aimed at uh, expansionism, initially territorial, uh, but in the 20th century, expansionism that focused more on on influence than on the uh, control of territory or the direct rule of of populations. Uh, My point is the project didn't begin at World War II. The project was was received a a further boost as a consequence of World War II. It was after World War II that we sort of officially donned the mantle of global leadership. But then it received a further boost by the end of the Cold War. Uh, when it appeared there were no challengers to American primacy. And after the uh, Gulf War of 1991, it appeared that there really was no power on earth able to resist the United States military. All of this turns out to be illusions, Uh, but they were illusions that have had a powerful influence on U.S. policy, particularly over the past uh, 20 or so Years, you know, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the uh, uh, Iraq War. It'll be very interesting, I think, to see how that's remembered. If your friend that we talked about, if your friend remembers the Iraq War and what she has to say about it, my own 
uh, inclination is to think that most of our fellow citizens have already forgotten that uh, misbegotten conflict. Uh, and we've allowed, of course, uh, the, the Ukraine war to become an excuse uh, not to assess uh, our own policy failures of the previous 20 years. I, I'm going to ask one little more question in that, which is which you can pass over lightly because I'm asking you to read other people's minds. <laughs> but but that moment that you speak about, it seems to me uh, quite something. You You've labored in the trenches metaphorically for years. The Cold War ends, which is what you were fighting, and you expect a change and it doesn't happen. Why do you think that expectation and that disappointment and thus that that perspective shift wasn't broader, even among, let's say, your peers? I'm sure you had conversations uh, in this period. Well, I don't know about the conversations, but uh, I think that the end of the Cold War elevated to new heights. The notion of American exceptionalism, uh, you know, the conviction, not not necessarily stated outright, but nonetheless understood and widely shared that we are the chosen people, you know, whether it was God or providence or history, uh, that some something has singled us out uh, to, to play in, in effect, a redemptive role in history, to bring history to its predestined conclusions. Now I say it, and you can hear the sarcasm in my voice, but <laughs> because I find that kind of thinking to be dangerous and bizarre, but it's widely shared. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's widely shared, certainly in our political establishment. Uh, so that, I think that's one problem is the, the American exceptionalism, but a related problem is the military industrial complex. Uh, that the military itself, uh, the leadership of the armed forces, senior politicians, the people who reside in think tanks or in strategic studies programs in, in American universities, all have a full self-interest in maintaining the status quo with regard to national security. Uh, and, and collectively, they carry great weight. I mean, a very, a very, very tiny example of that is that we experience failure and defeat in Afghanistan, the longest war in our history, in, not the worst war in terms of, of American lives lost and ruined, but the longest war in our history ends in defeat, failure, televised uh, because the evacuation from Kabul is seen by all, uh, and almost immediately, the Congress passes a defense spending bill that increases the amount of money that goes to the Pentagon. In other words, nobody stopped and said, hey, wait, 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 this hasn't gone well. Maybe we should think a little bit about the allocation of resources. No, 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 no. The military fails, they get more money. I think that's the military industrial complex in action. And I think it is illustrative of the difficulty of bringing about any any real change. I think that those two prongs, as you say, American exceptionalism and uh, military industrial complex add up. Um, I must say, as you were talking about the American exceptionalism, that we are chosen. I, I again thought of my own personal experience. I was brought up Catholic, which basically has the same. It, it sounded very similar to me as a, as a young Catholic boy. We were the chosen religion and 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 we were to you know to do good in the world and i i i kind of moved on from that but the american exceptionalism you know is the same it's the same thing and it's and i guess there's something in our culture that um we like to think we're on those teams those those yeah. exceptional do good teams, those thousand th cities on the hill. Let me tell people, this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally speaking with Andrew Basevich. We're going to talk about Ukraine. We've been talking about defense spending and the dominance of military perspective and military solutions in American thinking. And, and the ideas in his newest book on shedding an, abs an obsolete past, bidding farewell to the American century. You can learn more about Andrew's work at responsiblestatecraft.org. That's one word, responsiblestatecraft, 
org, And you can find a lot of his latest articles at Tom Dispatch, one word, TomDispatch.com or TheNation.com. You were going to say, Andrew. Well, I was also born a Catholic, raised a Catholic, and I'm still a Catholic. Uh, and I think my, at least what I have come to understand as integral to Catholicism is different than what you recall. Because what I have come to understand is that embedded in Catholicism is an appreciation of our sinfulness, individual and collective. God knows uh, that given the crises that have enveloped the Catholic Church over the last decade or 15 years, uh, that has uh, enhanced <laughs> our, our, understanding, our understanding of sin. So I would, this is where you and I, I think, would, would differ. I don't, I don't see my religious understanding as part of the problem of American exceptionalism. Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll just, I just leave it yeah. at that. Yeah. 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 And, and, yeah, and I mean, this is, you know, a, a tangent that we're in here, but I, right. I think what I'm saying is not so much that, I mean, yes, original sin is, is key. Um, maybe not more among Catholics than among some Protestant uh, uh, denominations, but certainly key. But I think I, I just remember as a kid thinking that we were the good guys. If you recall, I went to Catholic school. There was a Catholic-Protestant difference. What was yes. it that was different? And part of it was that we were Jesus's real people, and we had the yeah. Pope and that sort of thing. That's I what think, I meant. I, th I think that that's. I think that that's fair. However, the awareness of original sin, which is still part of my frame of reference, is is crucial here. I mean, you know, we're going to get it off off topic here again, but of course. This, this is where the current uh, ongoing arguments about American history are at least of some interest, you know. Yes. Uh, this, I, I have a lot of problems with the 1619 Project, but nonetheless, a useful uh, aspect of that has been to elevate an awareness of an American original sin related to slavery and, and more broadly racism that really does contradict the claims of American exceptionalism. I mean, how the heck can we claim to be in history in the world, the chosen people designated to rule, if we have this part of our background, and really not simply part of our background, like, you know, something that happened long ago, <laughs> but some, something that remains with us, even if in, in modified form. So, uh, yeah, original sin, important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's let's talk. We're going to jump far afield, but you brought it up as sort of one of the current situations. Let's talk about Ukraine. Yep. I've got some specific questions, but first, do you have like you know when someone says, Andrew, what's going on in Ukraine? What should we be thinking? What should we be doing? What should I be looking at? Do you have a take? on Ukraine, and then I have some other specifics. Okay, so my take would go like this. Point number one, uh, this is a needless war. Uh, and it's a needless war to which we contributed. We're not at fault. Putin is the criminal. Putin is the aggressor. But there were plentiful warning signs that if the United States pressed on the notion of Ukraine becoming part of the West, or more specifically part of NATO, that that was going to be a cause of belly from from Putin's perspective. That's not just some wacko left wing progressive saying that. You remember that William Burns, currently the director of the CIA, in his prior assignment was U.S. ambassador to Moscow, and famously, it's available online. You can read it. Uh, warned, uh, I think it was during the Obama years, that even threatening the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO was a red line from Moscow's perspective that we really shouldn't cross, that that was going to be a cause of war. George Kennan, the famous, deservedly famous uh, American diplomat, had sounded that warning years before. And the essence of the problem here, or essence of, of the situation, is that I think the United States government, more broadly our political elites, don't seem to be willing to acknowledge that Russia has security interests 
that are different than our own. You know, the prevailing notion is that if Russia just goes along with what we want, then they will have no problems. Well, this is an unrealistic expectation. So again, Putin is the aggressor. Putin is the criminal. But our fingerprints are all over this war and it could have been avoided. That'd be point number one. Point number two is, yeah, we got to support uh, Mr. Zelensky. Uh, we have to provide uh, some ability for the Ukrainians to defend themselves. And they have covered themselves with glory. I mean, the courage uh, that Ukrainians have shown, uh, the bravery of their soldiers, uh, beyond admirable. And, and that's not to our credit, that's to their credit, although certainly the weaponry that we and others in the West have provided has, has helped mightily. But I think where we go too far is this language of defeating Russia. Secretary of Defense Austin, I think, has explicitly said the object of the exercise is to defeat Russia. Toward what end? Uh, it seems to me that the object of the exercise for U.S. policy is to end the war as promptly as possible. Now, you could say to me, OK, smart guy, give me the three point plan that's going to make that happen. And I would say I have no three point plan. Uh, I, but I can tell you that the war will end someday. And when it ends, Ukraine and Russia are going to be neighbors. And it would be good for them and for us if maybe not immediately. But if over time, the relationship between the two could be one that would be cordial as opposed to hostile. And as far as I can tell, in the American establishment, there's no thinking about that whatsoever, because the urge to punish the Russians, to inflict pain on the Russians, uh, overwhelms all other uh, strategic considerations. That's a problem. And the Quincy Institute is one of the voices that's arguing that point, and again, I think the, the mood in Washington is not particularly conducive to our message, but nonetheless, that's what we believe in and that's where we stand. Ironically, if that's the correct word at this point, the Ukraines are doing better than we do in most of our wars. And Aha. so we might, <laughs> we, we, might, we might finally win one and that's why we talk about winning. Well, but of course, this, the whole thing is drenched in irony. Uh, if, if indeed the war ends on a successful note, uh, our role will have been as a proxy. There are a handful of Americans, and I guess Brits and others, who have decided that they want to go to Ukraine and, and, and fight yeah, for right, Ukrainian right. freedom, but it's, uh, probably you can count them on the fingers of, of, of two hands. The American military, I'm sure it's providing uh, intelligence support, uh, and, of course, it's providing materiel support by delivering uh, all the, uh, the weapons, munitions, and the like uh, to, the, to the theater of operations. But you're right. If you look at wins and losses lately, we haven't done too well. And it's funny, when you pointed out the victory in 91 in Kuwait, um, I had forgotten that one. I thought it was a, a, I thought it was a string of defeats, with the only exception being Grenada. But I, I had just forgotten. Even uh, Iraq in 1991, I think, has been vastly overblown. The object of the exercise, the, the mission, the military mission. We're going to get down in the weeds here a little bit. The military mission was to destroy the Iraqi Republican Guard so that Saddam's hold on power would be he could be overthrown. We did not destroy the Iraqi Republican Guard. After the ceasefire, the Republican Guard returned to Baghdad and became the force that kept Saddam Hussein in power, meaning that politically, we didn't accomplish our purpose. Because politically, the guy we were trying to get rid of remained. And by extension, because Saddam remained in power, the U.S. military made a post-Desert Storm commitment to the region that really became an important step toward oh. what was going to happen next. What was bin Laden so pissed off about? You remember? What he was pissed off about is the fact that there were these infidel soldiers stationed in Saudi Arabia, the land of the, the sacred sites to Islam. That was absolutely unacceptable to him. 
and he declared war on us. Now, not for a second am I trying to justify bin Laden, not for a second am I trying to justify 9-11, but we need to understand the train of events that bring us to where we are today. The Iraq War of 1991 was a partial success, and the part that was not a success moved us down through a sequence of events that would end up leading to the Iraq War and all the other bad stuff that's happened since we invaded Iraq 20 years ago. Very good. Good clarification. Thank you. So you already admitted that you don't have a three-point plan to, to end uh, the, the uh, conflict in Ukraine. Is negotiation possible with an invader who claims your territory and rejects your sovereignty? If you get what I'm saying, when I have thought about talking about Ukraine in these conversations, I don't know quite where to go because of that question. How do you get to a negotiated settlement if one of the parties, you know, begins with those premises? Well, the, the, the premises have to be questioned, I think. Uh, we need to end the war. We need to bring Putin to an understanding that he needs to end the war. Does President Biden have any influence with Mr. Putin? I think not. Uh, who has influence with Putin? I don't know. You know, are there are there are there forces within Russia uh, that he that he listens to? I don't know, uh, but at some point it seems to me that the the adverse consequences of his folly in invading Ukraine become so obvious that he will realize, or someone in his place will realize, that the war has to end. Now let us understand that the the theater in which and I'm not an expert on Ukrainian history here, okay? Uh, the theater in which the war is, is taking place is immensely complicated. Russian speakers here, Ukrainian speakers there. The whole question of Russia's claim to Crimea uh, and the legitimacy of that claim. These are all exceedingly uh, sensitive matters and there's no easy solution, but if you wanna end the war, if you want to end the suffering, if you want to make possible the reconstruction of, of Ukraine, if the Russians would like to make possible moving beyond this war that from their point of view has been horrific as well, then there has to be compromise. Who, who is in a position to be the agent for that compromise? Again, I don't know. <laughs> Go back to my Catholic roots. I actually think to some degree uh, it, it could be the Pope uh, who's got other things on his mind right now besides being very, very old. But nonetheless, a third party, nobody in the West can do this. You know, the Germans aren't going to make peace for us. The Brits aren't going to make peace for us. Uh, in the third world, there's so many troubles. I don't know. I mean, I guess some people might say that uh, President Erdogan in Turkey could be an inter, useful interlocutor. I don't, I don't really know if that's true, uh, but, but there has to be some entity uh, that can have enough standing with both the West and with Putin to make possible the negotiation. There has to be a negotiation or they continue to fight. Uh, we're already approaching, what, a year uh, of conflict? Yes, that's right. Most observers say uh, there's no end in sight. I don't know enough about the, what's going on on the ground to say that. Uh, but uh, I guess my only point here is that we claim to be the most powerful country in the world. Uh, and it is not within our power to impose or dictate a peace. But it should be a priority of, our, of the Biden administration to try to play a useful role in bringing about the peace. At least from an outsider's perspective, it seems to be what, what the Biden administration is mostly interested in is sending more weapons. Uh, that cannot be the totality of U.S. policy, it seems to me. OK, so so in other words, in answer to that specific question, how do you negotiate with an invader? It's it's I'm not even sure, but you have to make ending the war a prior a priority. Correct. Correct. And, and that's what's missing. OK. Correct. OK. You, you heard me correctly. <laughs> um, let's switch to your 
book, which will, I think, frame the rest of the conversation and in some sense uh, has been what we've been talking about uh, without mentioning it specifically for most of the conversation. How did this book happen and why a book of essays now? Well, so I've been writing for Tom Englehart, the editor, the proprietor of Time Dispatch. To tell you the truth, I'm not sure how long. It's been at least a a decade, maybe 15 years. I can't remember which one of us, it was me or Tom, uh, thought that it might be useful to pull together a selection of my contributions to Tom Dispatch and try to give him a a second life. And the publisher, uh, Haymarket Books, uh, agreed that that was a workable idea and we were off to the races. The justification for the book, I think, would be that Maybe it's a justification for that friend of yours that we were talking about at the beginning of this this conversation to provide an account of our various and sundry military misadventures covering the past decade or so with the hope that that account would drive home the point that collectively these episodes in our military history have a lot to say, that we need to put them together in order to provide some perspective. I think that's the gist of it. And when when you put them in a book and and you said, revisit them in some ways, what it does is there is an ephemeral nature to an essay that's published that I receive receive online. And, you know, maybe I get to it, maybe I don't and so on. And this way you say, wait, here's my thinking and here's what I've been, you know, dealing with. And you you give us some- You've made made the point much more effectively than I did. (laughs) Um, you then had to go back and look at them all. Did anything uh, surprise you or how did your thinking evolve in reviewing your own evolving perspective over the last decade? First of all, this isn't all the ones that were appeared in Time Dispatch. This is a, this is actually a selection. I, right. One, one of the surprises is I can't believe I wrote that number of essays for Tom. Uh, <laughs> I understand. I guess. It's not a surprise, but it's a it's a reflection. It's a reflection not simply about these essays. It's more a reflection about the whole unfolding narrative of events, not simply going back to 9-11, but really, frankly, going all the way back to Vietnam. The older I've gotten, the angrier I have become. The more difficulty I have to understand why we did what we did, why 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 we bought the justifications offered by our leaders you know whether whether we're talking about uh, john kennedy and lyndon johnson or whether we're talking about uh, george w bush uh, after 9 11 and dick cheney uh, and dick cheney with the passage of time their arguments just seem so obviously defective i'm working on a little piece right now actually for tom in which i recall in the essay lyndon johnson's now forgotten, May 1961 visit to Saigon. And, and Kennedy, President Kennedy had sent him on this tour of Asia uh, to uh, you know, prop up, bolster, justify uh, US policy uh, in Southeast Asia. And so necessarily there was one stop in Saigon because we were deepening US military involvement in the, in the Vietnam War at the time. Uh, and, and, and Vice President Johnson famously Famously, standing next to President Ziem of South of South Vietnam, declares him to be the Churchill of Asia. This is a quote now, folks. <laughs> and you know, and, and, and you laugh, and in retrospect, that's that is the appropriate response. The Churchill of Asia, uh, ludicrous. Uh, Johnson was probably reading the script he was given by some scriptwriter. I mean, a, a speechwriter. Who knows? Within a year and a half after that speech, we're, we are complicit in a coup that overthrows President Ziem and results in his murder. And of course, that simply opens the floodgates to the Americanization of the war. And before you know it, we've got a half million US combat troops in South Vietnam. And, and, and so for me at age 75, and you're about to be 75, you, you look back on an episode like that, President Ziem, Churchill of Asia, which of course also implicitly says that the conflict then in its early stages uh, in South Vietnam, it implicitly says 
that that conflict is the equivalent of World War II. Right, right. And the whole thing, again, in retrospect, becomes so preposterous that, that I say to myself, how could I have ever believed any of that? And that's what makes me angrier, I think, as time goes by. How could I have believed any of that? Not, 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 I mean, I'm not angry because I was fooled. I'm angry because 58,000 Americans were killed in Vietnam. Yeah. Not to yeah. mention the hundreds of thousands who were wounded and then the hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese and on and on and on. Uh, so. And with the outcome. And by the way, with the outcome being what it would have been had we never gone. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, they, the, as far as I can tell, the Vietnamese are doing okay. I don't want to live in Vietnam, but I think they're doing okay. And they'd be doing okay if we'd never showed up in the first place. Uh, and anyway, so then then I try to I reflect on things like that and then try to apply them to our present circumstance in Ukraine or wherever and say, God, we're still we're we've learned nothing. We've learned nothing. Uh, and uh, that makes me even matter. And you keep at it. Let me let me go back to the thing. And, and this will be the last question, Andrew. The thing I said at the in the intro, which, which is that. Is military action, defense spending, kind of the one huge thing that both parties, both political tribes feel serves them? They compete to be more hawkish uh, than the other. Uh, they, 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 they come together when they're not doing anything else in unity and vote for these, you know, more than the president asked for almost every year. Um, both think it's a winning position. It's a national jobs plan and so on. And then common sense, the kinds of questions you and the Quincy Institute raise are fringe. And, and, and it's Rand Paul on one side and, 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 and Code Pink on the other. And there's, how do we get out of this? And this will be the last question. You got about three or four minutes. Oh, I think I need like five seconds because I mean, the honest oh. answer is uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I think you're putting your, you're, you put your finger on a, a key point. And that is that there's this massive a consensus that transcends the political center uh, so that on matters of of military spending, we don't have a two-party system. We desperately need a two-party system in all kinds of ways, two principled parties to fight it out. Uh, and, and the realm of national security would be one of those uh, realms that where, where a debate is needed. And it, it, it simply doesn't exist. I, I, I mean, I, I despair. I don't, I don't know what, what can be done. Uh, you got, you're right, you got Code Pink and you got Rand Paul. Uh, and uh, I admire Code Pink. I've met Rand Paul. He's actually a pretty, pretty smart guy. Uh, but neither of them, neither of the fringes, have any real influence uh, in Washington. And uh, therefore, we are condemned, I think, to do the bidding of the military-industrial complex uh, until some mammoth catastrophe occurs. You would think that the catastrophes that we have sustained, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, would, would suffice to, to work as a wake-up call, but they haven't. You know, I tremble to think about what kind of catastrophe would have to occur uh, before we would have a, an actual debate about our, about our military posture in the world. Uh, but we're stuck, I think. Okay. So, so you continue your work. The Quincy Institute continues their work. The fringes continue their work. But the the monolithic acceptance of this, as, as I said, that both of them think this is a winner for me, um, right. is 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 a enormous loser for America, its people, and the world. You are correct, sir. Thank you, thank you, Andrew Basevich. Um, the new book is on shedding an obsolete past, bidding farewell to the American century. Um, you've got a sense of uh, that that's sort of the the underlying thinking, the 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 deeper analysis of everything that we've spoken about here during this hour. The websites to uh, learn more about uh, Andrew Basevich's work are responsiblestatecraft.org and tomdispatch.com. Tomdispatch.com or thenation.com is where uh, his publications uh, show up. Thank you, Andrew Basevich. Keep up your good work. Thank you very, very much. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. 
or one word, a world that just might work.com. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on what we're going to talk about and usually 10 articles to flesh out the conversation, sign up at my site or email me at temcnally at mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform podcast on Apple Podcasts and most major podcast sites. You'll find years of podcasts at my site or at those sites. Listen anytime, anywhere. Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Kiana Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you, my listeners, share this podcast widely. See you again soon, Andrew. Thanks a lot. Hi, it's radio veteran Nicole Sandler. Sadly, the radio we all grew up listening to and the industry in which I worked for 40 years has been decimated. I turned up the radio. I can't hear it. Thanks to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, a handful of giant corporations control what you hear on the so-called public airwaves all across the nation. But times have changed. Turn it up, turn it up, a little bit higher. Radio, it's the 21st century, and at Progressive Voices, we're reclaiming so you know. our time. Progressive Voices, now powered by TuneIn, speaking truth to power 24-7 on the Progressive Voices Network. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Scott Paul joining us, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. The Biden administration has issued standards for American-made EV chargers. And I want you to talk about this because I know there is legislation that does a couple of things, right? Uh, that tightens but also expands coverage of Buy America rules governing federal infrastructure spending that was passed with that big, huge infrastructure law in a bipartisan manner. One of the reasons why this bipartisan infrastructure law got passed, uh, and it was one of the few kind of bipartisan things that got done, um, and granted it was mostly Democrats and some Republicans, but still it was bipartisan. You just don't see that often these days. But one of the reasons why it got passed, you know, $1.2 trillion, was that it had a made-in-America requirement. And that is that all of this infrastructure that we're building out, whether it's fiber-optic cable uh, or new bridges, school construction, waterworks, EV charging network, the equipment, the steel, the iron, the construction materials have to come from the United States. And this is the largest expansion of this requirement that we've had since the law was first put into place in the 1930s. So it's, it's a really big deal. We're in the implementation phase. They're rolling this money out the door. They're getting it to the states and uh, there's construction that's starting. And so getting the rules right is very important. And the reason, and thank you so much for encouraging people to take action on this. The reason why we need to do this is because there are some interests who think that by America, is a bad idea. And those interests are, you know, either some contractors who do infrastructure who were used to buying kind of the cheap uh, dumped imported goods. And so their margins are going to be cut a little bit. In some cases, there's some states who think, well, this is a lot of paperwork. I don't know if I want to do it or not. The reality, Leslie, is they wouldn't be getting any of this money if the Buy America wasn't in there. So they should be pretty happy about it. And then there's there's some of our you know some of our foreign competitors don't like it either because they don't want to be necessarily excluded from this. But hey, this is tax dollars. This is you, me, everybody else in the United States who's paying this. And so we know we all agree. In fact, we've done the polling. We know everybody agrees that American workers, American manufacturers should have the very first shot at this. That's why it's important to weigh in now. 
Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Progressive Voices desperately need your financial help. Please go to ProgressiveVoices.com and press the donate button right now. Thank you.